head schoolmaster, uh, Tommy Graham. And uh, I've come fully armed here with an exhibit from next door uh, in case there's any breakdown of law and order. Um, now, if you're, uh, if you're not a, a, a subscriber to History Ireland, of course, you can redress that oversight by filling in the, the form which you were handed on the way in. And you can also get a copy of our latest issue, if you haven't already got it, from our publisher, uh, Nick Maxwell, uh, after the, the show. Now, tonight, uh, first of all, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here in Richmond Barracks in this, uh, this tremendous uh, exhibition space. It's the first time I've been here, actually, uh, since this, this has been established. Uh, very impressive it is. And tonight uh, we are discussing uh, Poet of the Blackbirds, The Life and Death of Francis Ledwidge. Uh, now this is a quote, uh, I was astonished by the brilliance of that eye uh, and that had looked at the fields of mead and seen there all the simple birds and flowers with a vividness which made those pages like a magnifying glass through which one looked at familiar things for the first time. So wrote Lord Dunsany patron of the poet uh, Francis Ledwidge. So how had this self-educated labourer, the eighth of nine children, who left school at 13, how had he emerged as one of Ireland's most notable uh, war poets? What were the contradictions in the life of this trade unionist, uh, Gaelic leaguer, Gaelic leaguer and Irish volunteer, who ended up joining the Royal Enniskilling Fusiliers and dying in the Third Battle of Ypres on the 31st of July, 1917. So to discuss these unrelated matters, uh, we have uh, Liam O'Mara, uh, Chair of the Intercor Ledbridge Society, and we're joined also by uh, Michael O'Flanagan, who's the Secretary of the Society, and both, of course, uh, have published widely on uh, Ledwidge. Uh, on the far left there, we have Yun O'Halpin from Trinity College. Yun uh, just fresh back from a major conference yesterday on the Irish Convention. Uh, That's right, yep. Law and order didn't break down there, Union. Hopefully, not. no, no, good, no, good. There, sure. uh, a, a very interesting uh, uh, topic that. And then finally, we have uh, Miriam O'Gara Kilmurray, who's the education liaison officer of the Irish Military War Museum and Park. Uh, but more pertinently, she is a, a mezzo soprano. And uh, you notice we have a piano set up here. So this is a, a multimedia uh, presentation. Uh, so we, if we ask her nicely, uh, Miriam has has promised she will sing us a few numbers, uh, and we, we will be joined uh, by Michael Holohan, um, uh, the composer, and also by Rebecca Dracy Kulishaw, who will be playing the Corndlay. I've never heard of this instrument before, I have to say. Americans call it the English horn, which is much easier to remember, uh, but a, a very uh, fine-sounding instrument it is too. Now, Liam and, and uh, Michael, maybe I'd just like to start with you, just a, a bit on Ledwidge's uh, background, maybe Liam, if I, if I go to you first, yeah. because I mean, it is like the question: How does this, you know, eight of nine children uh, uh, from a, you know, a labourer, how does it become one of our, our best-known poets? Well, Ledwidge grew up; uh, he was the second youngest of nine children, born to Anne Lynch and um, Patrick Ledwidge, um, loosely described as peasants, but they were considerably better off than a lot of uh, people at that level. For instance, they had um, a solid stone cottage, which still remains today, and they had a half acre at the back where they sold vegetables and they kept um, some pigs and poultry. And um, the father, um, he had served his time as a butcher, but he had a special skill at uh, castrating pigs. And there was great demand for this because... It's more information than we needed. Um, there was a great demand for this because not many people wanted to do that job. 
So, but he used to have to travel distances to perform it. And um, he, they, people would put him up overnight, he'd have a dinner, and he'd have a great regard for anyone with such skills or any sort of trade, you know, to be, it was very well looked after. But the family wouldn't see him too, too often, you know. Eventually he'd come back with, with some money. But he died when Frank was only four years old. And uh, whether, whether by natural causes or whether he got the wrong side of some irate bore who uh, had some issues about what he was attempting to do, <laughs> Uh, I don't know, but um, he died when he was four, and Mrs. Ledwidge had to go to work. And the only work available to a woman at that level was to go out into the fields. So she went out um, tinning mangolds and turnips, and um, she also took in laundry and sewing to provide for her family. And she became a bit of a local legend because she was such a, a hard worker. But then catastrophe really struck then when the eldest uh, son, uh, Patrick, who had a job as a clerk, um, he was hit by tuberculosis. And uh, his wages stopped coming in. There was no such thing as um, sick pay back then. So uh, the money wasn't coming in, and the family were uh, behind with the rent. And they were on the point of being evicted from their cottage. And it was only because of the doctor wouldn't allow his patient to be shifted that they managed to hold on to the cottage. And uh, eventually, unfortunately, uh, Patrick died and the family couldn't afford the funeral. So the Navin Board of Guardians stepped in and, and paid for everything. And I think this had a profound effect on Francis Ledwidge. He said out those times, it, it was as though God had forsaken us. And, um, it's no coincidence, I don't think, that when he became a man, he became involved with that same Navin Board of Guardians. He became a member of the board. And he also um, joined the uh, approved society, which was a sort of a forerunner to the uh, Mead Labour Union, looking after the needs of out-of-work labourers and that. So I think um, all of these early experiences formed his um, later role as a social activist. So that was the beginnings of, of things. Um, he was also starting to write poetry at that early age. Um, it was his brother, Patrick, who dabbled a bit in poetry, and he picked it up. Um, Can I just, I just bring uh, 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 Michael in here on that. Michael, what, what re religion was he? Religion, well, he was obviously Catholic, but um, I wanted to focus on his, his, uh, his religious belief. Now, uh, both uh, Liam, who was... Lane is probably the world's leading authority on Francis Ledwidge, having studied him and having gone and found uh, 66 poems uh, that had previously been unpublished and buried here, there and everywhere. Uh, and Liam has studied uh, Francis Ledwidge now for nearly a quarter of a century. But he believes that, uh, that Frank went away from his religion and gave it up. But that's not my opinion at all. I believe that uh, he, it, he, he, he adhered to his religion. Now, uh, on we, we don't normally get to a disagreement this early in the discussion. No. Yeah, that's great. Anyway, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, keep yeah, going. yeah, yeah. So, so that's the that's the disagreement group. But um, the, the one thing I wanted to point out there was all of the poets of, of that era, with the possible except, exception of Russell who believed in the gods, like all gods. Uh, he had a, a, a pantheotic uh, attitude to religion. Uh, the, the, the other uh, poets, like Pierce, uh, McDonough, and uh, Plunkett, 
God is in all our poetry. It's, it's constantly God is brought into it. And Ledwich was the same. Like, for example, I'd, I'd like to read you a poem here. Well, at first I'd like to point out that um, I wrote a few quotes. Uh, this is from Patrick Pierce. He says, uh, Our foes are strong and wise and wary, but strong and wise and wary as they are, they cannot undo the miracles of God, who ripens in the hearts of young men the seeds by which young men of a, of a former generation. That's by Patrick Pierce. McDonough says, But I found no enemy, no man in a world of wrong, that Christ's word of charity did not render clean and strong. And then, of course, we all know Joseph Mary Plunkett, I see his blood upon the rose, and in the stars the glory of his eyes, his body gleams amid eternal snows, his tears fall from the skies. So they're imbued with religion, and not only that, but in some respects, it's actually Catholicism that imbued it. Now, Ledwich, he has a poem uh, shortly before he died, it's about, uh, written the end of May 1917, he died in uh, July. Uh, 1917, and this is called Ascension Thursday. So listen to Francis Ledwidge writing a poem, which really appears to me to be nearly a prayer. As, and it goes thus, Lord, thou hast cast thy footprints in the rocks, that we may know the way to follow thee. But there are wide lands opened out between thy Olivet and my Gethsemane. And oft times I make the night afraid, crying for lost hands when the dark is deep, and strive to reach the sheltering of thy love, where thou art heard among thy folded sheep. Thou wilt not ever thus, O Lord, allow my feet to wander when the sun is set, but through the darkness let me still behold the stony byways up to Olivet. Is that religious or not? I think it is. I think, and this is shortly before he died, I think he was religious even to the end. Teddy, before I bring Liam in, Ewan, just come to you, would that be just par for the course though for that period, people were religious? Oh, I think so very, very much. And I think sometimes uh, the, uh, the, the element of Catholicism in a lot of writing, say that leaders of the 1916 <coughs> writing, is sometimes turned, turned against them almost because it's so unfashionable nowadays to, yes. to, to be not just Christian but Catholic. Yeah. But if that works and that you can say, say, you know, Pierce appeared to be, you know, overwhelmed uh, in writing sometimes with religious imagery. But you've only to go and read what people were writing in Germany or in France or even in mm. England at the same time. They all have discourses in which God, God is very much part of the uh, part of the equation, and particularly so in wartime. If, you know, the, if you look in the tomb of the unknown soldier, if you look in the cenotaph in London, an unknown soldier, but known unto God. So I, I think we, the Irish Revolution, whatever its faults, uh, the Catholic elements of it don't, aren't, in a sense, unique to Ireland. Do you see what I mean? At the time, people were religious. Lots of people lost their faith plainly, particularly, uh, not, not exclusively, uh, you know, through the horrors of war and so on. But it wasn't, it isn't a particularly Irish 
uh, phenomenon for that era. Uh, can I just say, I re remarked, in, I, I know very little about Ledbridge, but the little I know, he reminds you of a poet I knew slightly, Patrick Kavanagh, in terms of his background. In terms, again, Kavanagh has a lot of, now Kavanagh, forget to my knowledge, wasn't a particularly devout, devout Catholic, but he grew up in a milieu, a rural milieu, where naturally, Catholicism is part of the fabric, just as, uh, you know, if you grow up in, in Basra or somewhere, you know, you're going to be a Shia or a Sunni or whatever. It's just absolutely part of it. It's not, it's not simply, a, simply, simply religion. It's part of what you are, the language, the Gethsemane, whatever the terms you use. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So I think sometimes we can't, it's a mistake to try to take religion out, as it were. Uh, of people, and it's a mistake equally to over-project uh, the, the religion in their work, uh, to, to see them as excessively pious or excessively whatever. Because really, to some extent, religion was the language of imagination at the time. You know, there's an old fellow up there sitting on a cloud with a beard. None of us have ever seen him, but as a kid, you know, that was as much imagination so as that. Liam, defend yourself there. You're, being, um, you're swimming against the tide here, apparently. No, no. Um, he never made any formal statement about abandoning religion, but he just uh, got interested in other things. Um, in common with uh, W.B. Yeats, for instance, he, he got an interest in spiritualism, and he had books on spiritualism where he has passages underlined where um, it was to do with um, speaking to the spirits of departed people and that sort of thing. And I think this uh, comes into play um, when his girlfriend, Ellie Vahey, died. Um, he, uh, he stopped corresponding with the other girl in his life, uh, Lizzie Healy. When is this now? Um, this was, we're talking about late, later now, uh, we're talking about 1917, you know, um, between 1914 and 1917. And she died in 15. Um, and he, he, he suddenly stopped corresponding with this girl that he had at home uh, who, was, who pledged to wait for him until he came home. But he cut off all correspondence with her and he concentrated all his energies on uh, elegies for for Ellie Vahey, uh, who was dead, but um, I think he felt closer to her spirit in the spirit world because he, he felt that he was on the, the, the brink between life and death where he could be hurled into this, uh, the, the afterlife. And his very last poem, The Lan on She, um, is, uh, he talks about her calling him to uh, follow her into the spirit world. So he became in, interested in spiritualism. He became interested in hypnosis, which uh, gave him a very bad reputation in the village because um, when he was going around hypnotizing people, they, they, they thought he was uh, in league with the devil. <laughs> but there's one very famous story where both he and another man, James Kelly, went for the same job uh, as, as secretary of the Mead Labour Union. And uh, Kelly uh, got the job because he was the most qualified. But um, all of a sudden, Kelly uh, backed down and said, give the job to Frank. And he later on claimed that uh, Frank had hypnotized him. <laughs> so so uh, there was great rivalry between those two lads, so much so that when, when, when Frank was eventually uh, dismissed for incompetence because he was a great poet, but he wasn't great at uh, adding, adding numbers together, um, Kelly succeeded him and uh, he went through the, the, the drawers of the desk and found lots of pieces of paper because Frank was, of course, writing poems when he was supposed to be doing other things. And Kelly got the whole lot into a, a sack and burnt them. So uh, there was no love lost between those two lads. Um, 
the poem uh, mentioned by, by, by uh, um, Michael there is a lovely poem. Um, Gethsemane, of course, is, deals with the, the torture, the torment of, um, torment of Christ in the garden. And if you, if you see that as an analogy to, to Frank, um, um, where he doesn't think he's going to get out of the war alive, um, like he wouldn't be the first soldier to have doubts. Yeah. You know, um, over 300 soldiers uh, deserted and were um, executed at dawn, including 26 Irishmen. You know, so uh, that's understandable from that point of view. Um, my issues with that poem would be nothing to do with the sentiment. I think it's a lovely poem. It'd be more to do with the language. Um, it's hard to believe it was written in, in, uh, in 1970, and it sounds like it was written in 1517. <laughs> that will not ever dust allow, you know. Mm -hmm. Terrible. Could I just jump in there you sure. for just a moment, as Anne Lim? Uh, just listening to Michael and, and yourself, I think that th there's a lot of truth. I mean, you only have to read Ledwidge's poetry to see the spiritual side mm -hmm. in him. Mm -hmm. It's a very big question mark over yeah. whether or not, or just how religious he might have been personally. I'm sure, like all of us, he went through various phases, and then life knocks mm. this stuffing out of you. <laughs> Sometimes you're not quite as religious as, well, you, know, as you um, might have yeah. wanted to have been. But I think there is another side here that we can acknowledge too, and that even you only have to walk into the National Library of Ireland and you'll see the posters in there where you can see the propaganda machine, war propaganda machine, you know, targeting the Irish, young Irish farmer, using images of the church and St. Patrick to lure them in to sign up to fight. Yes. You know, another and Catholic Irish. Belgium, yeah, and Catholic Belgium, Belgium, exactly, yeah. and and listing all the raping and everything that they were doing and mm. making really motivating people to to sign up. So there's that. But on the other hand, you can also take it down a little bit to a little more micro example of a, a professional poet like Francis, which he you know he turned professional just months, a matter of months before he signed up. Um, that he would have been intelligent enough, he would have had the tools, and he would have had the, the, uh, the nous to be able to say, right, I need to legitimize myself. Remember, he had been court-martialed, he was disliked as well by, by the Irish after 1916. So he would have been looking for as many tropes as possible to legitimize himself. And of course, the Catholic Church wouldn't have just been a symbol in those days of, of religion. It would have been a symbol of education. Yeah. It would have been a symbol of power, you know. So in writing, uh, you know, th there's actually an awful lot in that poem, you know, Ascension Thursday, because he, you, you've got all kinds of language. He's linking up with epic imagery, epic language. He's using all different forms of, of poetic language. And also, as you say, you've got the imagery of Gethsemane, which can mean, we know now, can mean so much. So this is an awful lot you can look at in a poem written in 1917 that appears to be quite archaic in some ways. But, and, and you would almost say to yourself, well, if he wrote that poem, it must have been part of his juvenilia, but it wasn't. Yes. It was 1917. So, you know, you can look at that poem in so many different ways, and, and I think I'm going to have a look at it when I go up, because I really I forgot <laughs> about it. I've I completely been, forgot about it until Michael brought it up there. You know, yeah, this thing, I think part of the problem is that in contemporary society, we see the Catholic Church as part of the establishment, but of course, you had a Catholic Church, but, but it, was, it was a Protestant state, you know, so in a sense, there may not be a contradiction here at all. I mean, you know the point I'm getting at? In other words, if people are using Catholic imagery, uh, there is a subversive kind of a twist of it, in, in a sense, 
Well, perhaps, but I wouldn't say necessarily, because lots of people, I mean, I don't think it's the Catholicism that separates the rebels from other people writing poetry and experiencing the horrors of war at the time. I really don't. Could I just come in yeah. and yeah, say Christianity. that? I mean, what are the opening words? The proclamation. God gets into the proclamation. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Well, this brings another thing. And I mean, that's, James, that's signed by James Connolly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, this, I want to just talk then, just before we go on to the war, right, is his um, Ledwidge as a, as a trade union activist. I mean, how, how serious an activist was he? Um, I, I think it was more ambi uh, an ambition of his to be a trade unionist at the time. It's it, like it became a failed project very quick when the, when the strike at Bow Park failed, you know. Just give us some detail on that, uh, Michael. Well, he, he, was in the, he, he went into the mine and he tried, the, the conditions for the miners were atrocious. Where's uh, this now? Where is it? Uh, in, where is Bo it? Bow Park. Bo, Bo, what's Bow Park. In, it's in, in County Maid. Maid County Maid, right. yeah. County Maid, yeah. Uh, it's not far from, from where he lived anyway. But uh, he, he, uh, he found the conditions atrocious and he tried to organise the men and uh, he fa formed the Mead Labour Union at that time. And uh, he, he went on to be secretary of which union? Uh, well, like? it, was, it started off as yeah. what they call an approved union and then yeah. later became the, the Mead Labour Union. Yeah. And he, um, he had formed a second branch of that. And very soon there was about 35 branches throughout Mead. And what sort of workers were, were they um, organising? Oh, more or less farm, farm labourers. Okay. You know? And that's what I'm saying. He had a great empathy with, that, with the farm labourers because of his own upbringing and that. Yeah. He yeah. wanted to champion their rights. Would they later have been subsumed into the, the transport yes, union? Yes, yes, yes. 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 Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, this is. No, uh, I'm acknowledged actually today in the, the Danshaw Centre in Navan. Navan. Uh, the, the main hall there is, um, is called the Ledwich Hall as a tribute to, to his, um, his work in the Mead Labour Union. Now, I, I wanted, just before we move on to the war, I wanted, and, and before, I, before I do, I just want to, to, to uh, make it clear to everyone in the audience this is a school, you know? Okay. And you will be expected to, to participate in the, the, in the discussion. So gather your thoughts there as you're listening, because I, we will open it up to the floor um, shortly. So if you have any questions or points you want to make, and there is a radio mic here, and th this is all being recorded, by the way, so, so no, nothing libelous, please. Um, I want, just before we get on to the war, I, it, it, what fascinates me about Ledbridge, especially given his, his, his you know, trade union background to some extent, is his relationship with Lord Dunsany, yeah. which seems odd. Well, uh, and of course, that's what made him in a way. Mm. So Liam, well, what's, we, what's we, that? how we, did that we, 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 This is where we really began. Um, we, were, we, we got up to the, 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 the point where um, he was starting to write poetry. And one of his earliest attempts at poetry, he was taken out of school at the age of 13 because, um, of course, Mrs. Ledwidge um, was um, finding things difficult. And he was sent to work at whatever type of work he could get, which was mainly uh, working Can on Can you just farms. say on that, Liam, just, just make yeah. a point. That, is, that wouldn't be unusual, though. That, that was, again, yeah. you know, I mean, that would have been normal. I mean, my father left school at 13, I think. Yeah. You know. So, four, yeah, just to make that point. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, he, he, any sort of work he could get, and sometimes he used to travel far across. He, he often talks about wild for wandering. Well, uh, it, it, that began as a necessity because he had to. He was sent out looking for work a lot of the time, and um, he, he used to have to sometimes uh, sleep in the fields with just his coat in all sorts of weather. But um, he had a stint in, in uh, Slane Castle, where famously um, the uh, Marcus of Cunningham had the menu written on a board in chalk, and Ledwidge rubbed it out and wrote down uh, pig's feet and cabbage. Of course. <laughs> 
of course he was sacked, but I think he had made his mind up to leave anyway, and he wasn't happy there. So then he was sent up to Dublin to a, a grocer as an assistant, uh, supposedly a grocer, WT Daily, but uh, in actual fact, Daly was running a, a Shebean uh, at the back of the pub, at the back of the, the, the store behind a curtain. He had a full uh, bar trade going on and, and young Frank saw a bit more of Dublin life than he was ready for. And uh, so he, he made up his mind that he was uh, going to try to escape somehow. Uh, he first of all tried to join the, uh, he actually did join the Royal Dublin Fusiliers Militia uh, at the age of 17. Uh, hoping to, that he might see some service, but he was disappointed there because uh, there was nothing happening at the time, and uh, he may have had some got training. Plenty, he got plenty of it later. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think that if he did get training, it stood to him when he later formed the uh, volunteers in Slane, but um, he was disappointed there, but it just showed that he had an interest in joining the British Army 10 years before the, okay. the First of War. So anyway, uh, he resolved then he would walk home uh, from Dublin back to Slane, and um, before leaving, he had a dream, and he dreamt that he was back home uh, in Slane in the old frequented ways, and this poem formed in his mind, and it was the very first poem we know of, and I'd like to read it for you. Um, and this is before, of course, he met Dunsany, but there is a clear link to Lord Dunsany in this poem. Um, I walk the old frequented ways that wind around the tangled braes. I live again the sunny days ere I the city knew. And scenes of old again are born, the woodbine lassoing the thorn, and drooping root-like in the corn, the poppies weep the dew. Above me in the hundred schools, the magpies bend our young to rules, and like an apron full of jewels, the dewy cobweb swings. And frisking in the stream below, the troutlets make the circles flow, and the hungry crane that watched them grow, as a smoker does his rings. Above me smokes the little town, with its whitewashed walls and roofs of brown, and its octagon spire tones smoothly down, as the holy mines within. And wondrous, impudently sweet, half of impassion, half conceit, the blackbird calls it down the street like the piper of Hamelin. I hear him and I feel the lure drawing me back to the homely moor. I'll go and close the mountain's door on the city's strife and din. I think strife and din is a perfect description of, of a drunken crowd leaving a pub in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, 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 fed up with Dublin, he called it um, Brick Horizons. And, uh, and he walked home. Now, the significance of that poem, with what you're going to ask me now about Dunsany, is that in 1912, he sent a copy book of poems to Lord Dunsany. And the poem that caught the eye of uh, Lord Dunsany, he talks about uh, his eye catching this gem, was this particular poem. And particularly the mention of the blackbird, and of course, Ledwidge would be stuck with this moniker of the poet of the blackbird, which was, mm. of course, preferable to the peasant poet or other, other titles he also. Uh, and you mentioned me about Dunsany and he, um, they shared a lot of interest, you know. They, he, Dunsany wasn't the old duffer that some people think. Uh, there was only nine years between their ages. Yeah. And um, his lordship invited him up to the castle and he had full use of the library. And um, he even uh, gave him money to, um, 
help him to concentrate on his poetry. And he was good to him. Um, now, we think of Lord Olsenia as the landlord, but in actual fact, um, he, he had a good reputation in the area. He was a kindly landlord and uh, employed a lot of the people on, uh, on his lands and looked after them well. So uh, he, was, um, he was well regarded. Um, a, a lot of uh, Ledwidge's stuff was being laughed at by the local people. They didn't understand it, and they used to laugh. They saw any spelling errors and that in it. Mm. Uh, whereas Dunsany was very kind to him and uh, helped him correct anything that was that he found wrong in the poems. And so it was a friendship. Mm. Miriam, you want to come in on that? Could, could I just? Uh back up what you're saying there because one of the things that, uh, that I found myself thinking about when I was doing my, my own research for, for my book on him was the fact that you know, this relationship with Dunsany was very rich. But if you think about it, we're in a barracks here today and, and I don't know how many of you may have been in the army yourselves, but you'll know that it's not just the sergeants, the captains, the majors. These are people who don't like time wasters. You know, they, they want to develop you, but they don't want to waste a lot of time on people. Lord Dunsany, very quickly, really from the time he received that notebook, even though he had, uh, their paths had crossed at A. Russell's house a little bit earlier, but from the time he got that notebook, he knew that he was dealing with something special. Mm. He identified in Ledwidge something that was worth putting time into, which I think tells us a lot about Ledwidge. It tells us that if Lord Dunsany, if, if that's how he was going to basically take him on board, give him an apprenticeship, if you like, mm -hmm. as his PA, um, take him through uh, open doors to <coughs> different types of literature, introduce him to different types of society. He must have identified something in Ledwich that was quite unique. And you see, the thing is, we might talk about the fact that he only left school at 13. That kind of uniqueness, it can't be taught. And it, it's, it's something you're born with. And I think really Dunsany was probably unique in, in his own gifts and that he was able to identify that in people, which probably would have made him a very good commanding officer as well. I, I think uh, it was a bit of a trophy too for Dunsany because there was, there was a lot of um, rivalry between Dunsany, Yeats and Russell. They were all looking for what they were uh, called a, an authentic voice among the peasantry. And when, when, when Dunsany came across Ledwidge, he said, this is it, and I'm going to score points on, on Yeats because I, I've discovered him first. Ewan, is that, was that, is that be a, you know, was there, were people collecting peasants? Well, know, yeah. poets? <laughs> no, I mean. <laughs> I think to some extent they were. I mean, it, it, it was a kind of a, an unusual fluidity that somebody like Ledwidge <clears throat> could, could move into such circles without having been politically prominent or without the other avenues. In those days, the very few avenues by which you could, as it were, get inside a rich man's door, and particularly the, this cultural milieu must have been quite, quite commendable, fluid in some ways. Whether they were patronised or, or lionised, I'm not sure. Is this better? Some of the, the, the things in you know, Roy Foster's you know, vivid faces. You know, this is this is an amazing period of, of flux in Irish society. You know, of, of possibilities and you know of different people interacting and so forth. Yeah, but I, I do think though what you're getting is the interaction here of. of, of Different kinds of radical politics, as well as, as well as the sort of more general uh, literary culture, and I think that. that's... Could I just make? Yes. A, a, I, I find it was a little learn. There's a little learning in the fact that as Liam found his poem, I think it was one of the first poems that Liam found when we went we went searching for poems that hadn't weren't in the in the Dunsany uh, complete poems. Uh, it was a tick for the lords, and it, it describes uh, <laughs> it describes 
that which is added to the 1910, which 1910. would be 1910, it 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 would be be for I know you're a friend of the cause, or and I won't be begrudging and make to solder the solder the link of the laws, or that our brother savages would break. Now he's talking about the unionists, you know, at yeah, that time, you know. Yeah, yeah. And Life. there's another line in that poem is to take the poor lords out of pain. So a, a couple of years earlier, he wouldn't have had a high regard for lords of any kind. Yes. And then, but it was yeah. on. A, well, that's it, about the House of Lords. That's about the constitutional crisis. So it yeah. was, yes, yeah. it was constitutional yeah. crisis. Right. Yeah. Well, this brings up to what I was, I was going to ask you, Michael: is like, yeah. how much of a nationalist was he? I mean, um, yeah, it's unfair of me to say, but I think it depended on the day of the week. <laughs> Why do you say that? Um, um, I'm intrigued. Can, can, I, can I come in a bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 Michael, why, why yeah. do you say that? Well, uh, particularly at the start of the war, he did the call to Ireland, and uh, he, 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 um, he, like, he, he wrote a piece of propaganda trying to get people to join the army at the, when he joined up himself, which was published in the Times. I'm not exactly sure. He would probably be able to tell you better than me. But, uh, but uh, there are other times when he referred to himself as a Sinn Féiner. So, okay. uh, uh, so he he, he was uh, well. he, he he changed his position within a very short time. Liam's going to Liam. Was yeah, he, he, um, he, he was very acute, and he, he would have made a great politician, you know. When he was accused of being a Sinn Féiner, he said uh, his answer was, uh, "I am no Sinn Féiner, yeah. uh, but a Sinn Féiner is as good as any man." <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's covering every angle, you know. Um, he did certainly have friends who were who were in the Sinn Féin movement. But what you, what you have to remember, first of all, is the Sinn Féin of, of that period was yeah. the Sinn Féin of Arthur Griffith. It was yeah. not the Sinn Féin that we, we, we think of today. As regards nationalism, too, I think our, our idea of nationalism today is coloured by uh, 1922 19, uh, and 1916. Um, we think of Robert Emmett and we think of Pierce rather than Isaac Butt or Henry Grattan or um, Parnell, Daniel O'Connell, John Redmond, all of whom were nationalists and had achieved a great amount through... Um, and whose rhetoric was pretty strident, by the way. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, if you read the stuff that, that um, um, Irish parliamentary politicians come out with, I mean, it's... it's and they'd achieved a lot, they, the enough, repeal you know. of the penal laws, the, the um, Catholic emancipation, and uh, they were on the brink now of delivering home rule, and all through peaceful negotiation, you know. Um, so Ledwidge was a nationalist, but he was a, he was a nationalist in the sense that, um, you know, he believed in home rule, which is uh, precisely what uh, Patrick Pierce believed in up to the end of 1912. Well, let's go on, get on to the big question. I mean, why, why did he join up? Well, we have his own statement. Um, I joined the British Army before, because she stood between an enemy common to our civilization, and I would not have it said that she defended us while we did nothing at home but pass resolutions. Now, people think that that was an early statement that he later um, rejected. It was actually written seven weeks before he died, and as such, it has to be considered his definitive comment on his position. Yeah. I, I, I do think also that um, he was anxious to get away from County Mead 
I don't think it was just uh, to do with uh, a broken uh, love affair. I think he was more of a man than that. I just don't, don't just skate over that one. Yes. I'll just go on. <laughs> so tell me more about that. Uh, his relationship with anybody. Um, if there ever was a relationship, um, we, we, we don't know whether it was all in his mind or whether uh, it actually was a, a relationship between them. Unfortunately, we don't have any letters, uh, unlike the other girl, Lizzie Healy, where we have a whole chain of correspondence written here to Lizzie. Um, we only have what he has in his own poems, and uh, you can't always trust what a poet says, you yeah. know, and we're, we're poets here. Uh, <laughs> 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 and I'm married to one, so I know. Can I, can I just throw something here? Because I, I'm struck by parallels with, with uh, Theobald Wolfe Tone. I mean, Tone was, was, was uh, obsessed with the whole thing, Don't military. And, and, you know, lobbied, you know, as a younger man, you know, looked for a position yeah. in the British establishment. Yeah. So is this just, again, you know, a, 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 a normal thing? People want adventure? I, I think, yeah, well, he, you know... Uh, I remember I was listening to Gerald Daw talking, and it's exactly what I picked up there. When he was on the, the battlefield, uh, he's looking up at the, the coloured rockets, the coloured lights in the sky, and the shells blowing around, blasting all around him. And he's in awe of this. He, he says uh, it was terrible, but I wouldn't have missed it for worlds. Uh, it's like he's watching a fireworks display. I think one of the you difficulties know. that now, in, in reflecting particularly on the First World War, is we are immediately taken into the horror and the, the rotting trenches and you know the dying on the wire and all that kind mm. of thing. You know, I, four out of every five soldiers who went to fought came back, right? Uh, some of them wanted to stay in armed forces of various kinds in various different countries, whether paramilitary or national, right? Uh, some people, they don't necessarily glory in war, but some people like the excitement. A friend of mine died two years ago. He joined uh, the, the, the Black Watch, his brother's regiment, his only sibling. Uh, 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 his brother was then killed. He was the only one, only one left. He, he actually snuck off for, uh, to see his mother the night before he went to Normandy. But he had no, no qualms about going to fight. He wanted to be a soldier. And I know lots of former soldiers of various kinds, in terrible wars as well as in sort of modern drone wars, who actually love the life. Now, I tell you, I don't want to go through a blow-by-blow -blow account of um, Ledwidge's war career, but it's pretty considerable. I mean, he, he was in the Dardanelles, Sauble Bay, but then he ends up in that, that what is really the forgotten uh, soldiers of, of the First World War, the yeah. fellows who end up in oh. Serbia, yeah, yeah. who are apparently lost uh, a load of uh, manuscripts, you know, so there's, 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 if any Serbian scholars out there, there's probably some stuff lying around uh, somewhere. <laughs> buried uh, in the to, snow. To, Buried yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then he ends up uh, back on the, 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 the Western Front. Um, um, I'm just saying, wondering, Miriam, is do you want to give us a blast of in France, maybe before we discuss that? Yes, Michael, certainly. Yeah, would, yeah. You, would you like us to do that, Michael Houlihan, as I say, and Rebecca on uh, corps anglais or English horn, as we've just heard? You'll be very impressed by this instrument. <laughs> so this is this is uh, Ledwidge's in France uh, to song and music. Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. Go ahead. Maybe if you just speak, if you speak into one of the microphones there, if you just, Miriam, you just, just if you just unclip your, yeah. So, or if you have, or do we have the uh, <laughs> too much. Do we two. have the, uh, yeah. the radio mic um, there? Maybe. Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, the, there are some songs you're going to hear tonight that are part of a larger cycle of mine called "The Hills Are Crying," and the reason I chose 
this instrument that Rebecca is playing, it's called the Koranglay or the English horn, is that like the oboe, this is an instrument that evokes the countryside and the pastoral, uh, the oboe uh, with its reed, and the Koranglay is, is, is a reed. And when I was composing these pieces about Francis Ledwich, I, I live in Drada, I spent an awful lot of time walking. I went to every single place that Ledwich wrote about, like Crubon, Curabui, all the poems. I went to each place. And what I noticed about the Boyne Valley was, especially at this time of year, is uh, sometimes they can cut the hay twice in the Boyne Valley. It's so rich uh, with grass. Another thing you notice are the sounds all around you, the sounds of the birds, the sounds of the insects. Another thing is the smell of the landscape. And all of this must have really impinged on Ledwich's imagination, especially when he walked the fields in his solitary contemplation of writing poetry. And, uh, and then there are wonderful monuments around the Boyne Valley, the prehistoric. And Ledwich had a place, a landscape, that he constantly sort of walked in. And this, to me, became the instrument here uh, that I was going to use to evoke the landscape of Mead. And in the song cycle, I use both the oboe and the corongli. You'll just hear the corongli tonight. So we start with, with In France.
Very good. Now, Miriam, um, I just want to come to you. I know you just get your breath there. Isn't no worries. It? <laughs> can can Led Ledwidge be described as a war poet, or was he simply a poet who went to war? Seems to be central to your, your work. <clears throat> yeah, well, the, the, the book that I wrote was actually my master's thesis, which uh, was Ares World War War Poet. But it was um, basically, I think you can argue it from a, a whole host of perspectives. Um, What's, can he, I ask you, give me, give, me a def, give me a definition of a war poet. Sorry, just to well, I mean, go back in, to basics here. Right, okay, if you, if you go back to the Second World War, then you have um, a, a definition of a war poet who would be a poet who was at war and who wrote about war from front lines. Mm -hmm. But you can go a little bit more deeply into it from a literary point of view. You can ask yourself, well, what did they contribute that was different to Siegfried Sassoon, for example, or any of the other uh, war poets that we more readily think of? Um, and I think with Francis Ledwidge, he's very unusual because he, he apart from the fact that he, uh, his, his volume of work ended when he was 29 years of age, what he managed to create uh, in his writings from front lines was a hybrid poetry that is uniquely Ledwidgian. And it basically, it, it is an amalgamation of his nationalist thinking and his, his, his talent as a poet and his knowledge and understanding which he would have gained and which have been, would have been trained, you know, through Lord Dunsany, trained in him. But also you have his war experience igniting something in him that was quite unusual because Francis Ledwidge, when he was at front lines, seemed to keep his sanity through writing. Mm. He was unlike, you know, I'm married to a poet, he's a mathematician, but Colm is a poet, and he needs to be in a certain environment in order to write his poetry. He needs a certain kind of set, a set of stimulations, if you like. Um, Francis didn't appear to need that. He was able to write in the noise, in, in, the, in the trauma, in, in the most extraordinary circumstances and what he seemed to produce and create then was uh, basically a hybrid form of poetry that we've come now to recognize as being typical of of the Irish in Gallipoli you know poems of that nature that uh, that still draw on his pastoral side that still draw on uh, the idea the concept of war poetry maybe with uh, a small w but equally you can say it's war poetry with a large w in the sense that he because he created this hybrid form it does set him apart now what was his attitude to the war though once he once he actually experienced it as opposed to a young man looking for adventure well, we can, we can really only look at what he's, he's written about. And although we've, and, and Liam has alluded to the fact that, you know, he can say one thing on one day and Michael has said maybe another on another day. At the same time, I think when it comes to, to his actual war texts written from front lines, you have uh, um, you've two things. You've got a very, very real band of brothers, truthful voice where he, you know, you see it in a soldier's grave. You can see the reverence coming through in that poetry, in that poem, you know, laying the, 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 the man to, to rest in, in a bed of flowers. You, you smell and you feel uh, the poem, but equally his reactions from front lines and also writing post uh, being at the front to the rejection uh, that he received, or that, that he, his, his own kind appeared to receive uh, once 1916 came along. Yeah, well, there's then there was what he said to his brother when he was home on leave. I think, what year would that be named? That would be... Well, it had to be 16. 16. Yeah. So it would have been 1916. It would be after the rebellion, 
and he was pretty shocked about that because his friends were, had been executed, some of his friends had been executed. But he did say, to, or at least his brother is rep uh, reports that he said to him that if the Germans came over the wall, uh, I would do nothing to stop them. Uh, I think, is that the correct phrase, Liam? Uh, yeah, basically that. I yeah. think, uh, you know, he was frustrated like everyone else at the duration that the war was, was taking. Yeah. I mean, people thought the war would be over by Christmas and here it was lingering on. And um, he was always complaining about being homesick. Oddly, he never mentioned about seeing uh, severed limbs or dead bodies. But he, the only thing he ever complained about was, was homesickness and wanting to be back home. He was homesickness, homesick even before he left Dublin, you know? I think as soon as he put his foot outside the gate of plane, he was homesick, you know? He couldn't be described as an anti-war poet, because some of them were. Well, not really, because uh, uh, Michael has already mentioned that uh, when he joined the army, he wrote a number of poems which were propagandist poems, The Call to Ireland and The Call, which were, um, in one of the poems, The Call to Ireland, he says that the shame uh, will be writ on, on the brows of, of your children true. if you don't uh, enlist now. Yeah. Of course, we now know that the opposite was true. The shame was written on the brows of the children because they'd enlisted. And that, that shame is only starting to diminish now. Uh, the other poem was um, a call to rescue the suffering Belgians, the Catholic Belgians. So there were both propagandist poems. And uh, I think, you know, th th those poems alone put him absolutely in the front line and I think as a war poet. That complicated things for him hugely yeah. because he wasn't there would have been a perception at the time of a war poet being paid to write about war and he didn't fall into that category no. he wasn't part of the, the propaganda bureau the, the, the wartime propaganda bureau which was in existence in london and so people would have heard about that but they they would have become perhaps confused and when once he started writing pieces like that that could have colored him but it was quite interesting that you should mention the word shame though yeah. because when i was i was giving a talk at the uh, Dundalk, um, the, the County Museum in Dundalk uh, in May, and I was talking to a crowd similar to yourselves, and one of the words that they, when I was asking, why do you think it is that we haven't acknowledged him as a war poet, for example, they all came up with this word shame. It was the shame. So, I mean, perhaps by accident he will have connected up with it himself by, pro you know. Um, and but it's it soliloquy, isn't the last um, one? Soliloquy, um, it appears to be propaganda from start to finish, but there's a twist at the end where he says, uh, whence honour turns away in shame. shame yeah. and, but that line was omitted by Lord Dunsany. Dunsany, he full of praise for Dunsany, but he did a few things like that, that that are regrettable, and that was one of them. He omitted that line because uh, it wouldn't have been PC at the time. Because I know so little about, about Ledridge, um, we use the term war poets. If we're in Britain talking about war poets, we know who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're talking about young men you know, who are officers, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, is there any, any famous uh, or other ranker sort of war poet? I, I just don't, don't think in those terms. And I think one of the things that distinguishes Ledridge and, and the Irish the cultural revival and the literary milieu, which, you know, which brought him, as I say, to, to stand beside a lord, it was, was the fluidity generated, as we said earlier. Mm -hmm. But I think that, I think that is, seems to be particular uh, to Ireland in a way. Can anyone think of a sort of an ordinary Tom, Tommy Atkins, as it were. Not an Irish one, no. Kettle was Kettle? No, I mean, I mean no, in, in Britain. What I'm saying is that it, it doesn't look to me as though, though, though certainly English or Welsh soldiers were, were 
uh, who may or may or may or not may or may or may not have written, but we we don't really hear them. We hear the officers. Well, they didn't have the support structures, but I think it, 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 it's an interesting point you make yes. uh, because I mean, if you think about it at the time, people would have what did they do in the evening to occupy themselves? They had the wireless maybe, but they certainly didn't have social media and TV. Of course, they would have drawn. They'd have done a lot of drawing. They'd have copied out loads of prayers. There was certainly a thing about copying out poems, yeah. copying out prayers. So I believe that there were many more poems coming backwards and forwards through that free post to families from the front, and we've lost most mm. of them. Well, I don't think that the person wrote just to be poem, officer uh, class. Uh, Tommy, he wrote another poem which was uh, again held back. It was a poem that he wrote uh, about a German officer that yeah. they had killed and they buried him and, and, and Levitt wrote a lovely poem about it. Again, that wouldn't have been PC at the time, so that, that, was, that wasn't included in any of his books until I included it in 1990. Yes. Now, I just, I just look at the time here, guys, and I want to move on to 1916 because it has been referred to several times here, but before we, we go back to the discussion, just to say, I, I want to open it up to the audience once this line of discussion gets going, so don't get too <coughs> comfortable there. And there is a radio mic here, uh, just, and, and make sure you use it so you can be heard because I say this is, is being recorded and will be available as a podcast on our uh, website. So Michael, I mean, obviously the, 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 you mentioned that the 1916 rising came as a big shock to him. How and why? I mean, you say some of his friends were killed. Was, was he politically opposed to it? Was he sympathetic to it? Because I, I want to, maybe if... if um, Maybe you want to get set up for, for the, the, sure. the men for yes. Tomas Minto, which I, which I read several times before this, and I, I, I still can't quite get my head around it. Like, what is he trying to say there about McDonough? Michael? Well, uh, as his most famous poem, well, really, isn't it? Well, so it is, but he also he wrote about McDonough being killed, uh, and he, he, uh, he was greatly affected by the fact that McDonough had young children. Hmm. And why and, McDonough in particular? Just well, he was very close to him. Of course, my, he, he, McDonough was a professor of English in, U, in UCD at the time, and uh, he was highly respected. And uh, uh, Ledridge obviously was impressed by him when he met him first. He, he met Countess Markovic, and he obviously uh, met Russell, as, as Miriam has mentioned, uh, he, he met Russell. So he was, he was mixing with these uh, fairly regularly when he was in Dublin. Does that suggest that it's personal rather than political, if you know what I mean? That the, the well, sentiments are, are about McDonough the person yeah. rather than his political stance? Oh, yes. Many, 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 many would have been just as a fellow poet. Nothing to yeah. do yeah. with militarism yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Tell you what, maybe we'll, we'll um, hear the words themselves, Miriam and Michael.
Yeah, yeah, Liam, maybe read that. I, I just want to get back to you on, on yeah. the, the, um, his attitude to 1916. Yeah. Okay, um, just to brief you on this poem, when Ledwidge returned to Ireland, um, he was shocked by the devastation of O'Connell Street. Uh, of course, at that time, it was still known as Sackville Street, so it, even the title of this poem is, is political. And um, he, uh, at the time, the rising was being denounced from the pulpit. It was uh, being spoken of as a failure and a blunder and all of this. Uh, Ledwidge didn't see it as such. Um, he saw that it would inspire others to take up arms, just as failed attempts in the past um, had led to further attempts at Irish freedom. So this is his poem, O'Connell Street. A noble failure is not vain, but hath a victory its own. A bright delectance from the slain is down the generation's throne. And more than beauty understands has made her lovelier here, it seems. I see white ships that crowd her strands, for mine are all the dead men's streams. Can I just bring maybe Union in here, right? Um, because, it's, I mean, going back to this question of even tone, right? Yeah. And Ledwidge, this, this, this uh, kind of idea of, of adventure. Is there a sense then that many of the guys who join up, right, suddenly say, oh, hang on a second, these, these, these guys who we laughed at, who stayed behind home, who were passing resolutions and marching, yeah. suddenly they've actually gone out and done the real thing. So it sets them in a, in a different light, the, the more advanced nationalists. Well, it does, but I mean, again, we have to be careful. Uh, one of the striking aspects of the rising, as compared with the fears of what would happen if there was a, re if there was a, re a rebellion in Ireland, how many Irish soldiers at the front refuse to obey orders? How many Irish sailors? Mm -hmm. There isn't a single, there's more, there's more from, from French, far more French <laughs> soldiers, yeah, you know, yeah. who absolutely refuse to do their duty and so on. Uh, so so, that, so you, what you don't get, even if you get a sense of sympathy in some ways for what yeah. the men have done at home, yeah. that does not translate at all into lower morale. It doesn't translate into dis Well, that bears out Miriam's point yeah. about the, the sense of comradeship. Yeah, it's really the band of brothers. I think that's the point. And it, I mean, it's, 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 it's also exemplified by, by the dismal failure of Casement to, to recruit people for a, an Irish brigade. Well, absolutely, but Casement was not the kind of person, it seems to me, who would be likely to. He yeah. wasn't himself a military figure. Yeah. I don't think he had the kind of bearing or the kind of accent or the kind of way with them. But he got about 50 or 60 or something. I mean, I yeah. just bear the point. Mm. Although the many, many of those same people came home, like the Tom Barrys of this world, the Emmett Daltons, and, mm. and became major figures in the, in the IR. Absolutely yeah. they did. But they didn't, they didn't desert and come home. No, they, no, they no. Their service no. and came home. And they got like Tom Barry got into trouble as a soldier. But there's the great irony. You know, there's, there's the great irony. Those who <laughs> did come home and they took part in the, in the, in the War of Independence. Yeah. And uh, they're considered heroes, you know, like Tom Barry and that. But those who um, were killed and didn't get the chance to come back, their names, uh, have, you know, the, the, their, and their relatives have this, this shame that we spoke about. You know, and that's the great irony, that's the great contradiction in all of this. I tell you, I'm looking at the time here, and uh, I can see this discussion hotting up here. I'd say get your, get your, your speak in now, uh, people. So anyone in the audience would like over here, and if you, if you just, uh, just wait for the radio mic so we can, we can hear you. Hi, I'd just like to ask, um, you've talked about the war, you've talked about 1916, you've talked about religion. When I think of Ledwidge, I think of nature. And I'd just like to ask Liam, particularly, where did he get his love of that? And what's your favourite poem? Maybe you'd read a nice one about um, nature. Okay, uh, I do have a favourite poem. I think it's one of the greatest poems in the English language. And it was written in 1913. Um, 
So it, it doesn't know as much influence to, they don't say any influence as others. Um, where did he get his love for nature from? Uh, I mentioned earlier that when he was young, he, he was sent out to work and sometimes used to have to travel across the countryside looking for work. He would have to sleep rough in the fields in, a, in, a, in an overcoat just for, as a kind of a sleeping bag, because he's a grey coat. And he'd wake up at, 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 at dawn and write about all that he saw around him. So a lot of the poems are, are written there in the open countryside and that's where he would have got his, his great love from. Um, can I read this poem? As I say, it is my favourite poem. And uh, um, let me see. Hmm. Da, 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 da. It's called A Twilight in Middlemarch. Within the oak, a throb of pigeon wings fell silent, and a grey twilight hushed the fold. And spiders' hammocks swung like half-oped things that shook like foreigners against our cold. A gypsy lit a fire and made a sound of moving tins. And from an oblong moon, the river seemed to gush across the ground to the cracked meter of a marching tune. And then, three syllables of melody dropped from the blackbird's flute and died apart, far in the dewy dark. No more but three. Yet sweeter music never touched a heart neath the blue domes of London, flute and reeds suggesting feelings of the solitude. When will was all the Delphi I would heed, lost like a wind within a summer wood, from little knowledge where great sorrows brood. And the interesting thing about that is, 1913, before his girlfriend died, before the First World War, before the horrors of the First World War, and here he is talking about great sorrows. Little did he know what was coming down the road. <laughs> so, yeah. With a lady with a hand up there, yes. Thank you. Hello, I was just wondering, can you hear, am I okay here with this? Um, I was wondering how fluid his writing was, or how easy it came to him to compose his poetry. And are there any manuscripts Oh, yes. uh, available so that we could see how much he had to rework his, his language to arrive at a beautiful poem. He seldom re reworked his work. Um, he could fill out a full scrap page while he was talking to you. And, uh, it came that he, easy. He rarely, yes, and he rarely revised anything. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Just, just down the back here, Nick, of course. Um, it's, I just want to comment on the, the remarks that were made that um, soldiers didn't desert, the Irish soldiers didn't desert. I imagine it would have been very hard to desert when well, they did. 26 soldiers did, Irish soldiers did desert and were shot at dawn. One yeah. of them actually served here. One of them, uh, the, the very first soldier to be shot at dawn uh, was a soldier here, uh, the, the West Kent Regiment, Thomas Highgate. He was yeah. only 19. And uh, he was very unstable while he was here. He was always in trouble, always been put in the cooler, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, he was sent off to France, and he was no sooner in France when he deserted. Yeah, than but, but the point is, desertion as a political act, if you like, uh, it just, it, you just don't see desertions as a political act until you get to 1920 and the Connacht Rangers. Yeah. Right? And that, that's, that's, that's what the British always feared would happen. That, that an Irish regiment or battalion would go bad. But in fact, it took, took very complicated circumstances in India. You know. well, that's just what I was going to remark on. Wasn't there always that ambiguity 
that there were always, the, there was the Curra mutiny, there was this, um, the Indian, uh, you know, again, I think it was the Connacht division, was it? Yeah, well, it's funny, if you look at the pensions records, by the way, one, one of the Connacht mutineers who got 15 years was let out after two or three, came back to Ireland, joined the National Army, went back to Britain. He writes to the, the Department of Defence in 1941 saying, there's no point in sending me my pension because yeah, he's in Germany. Why is he in Germany? Because he joined the British Army again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's back, he's back, he's a prisoner of war. You read all about it in History Ireland. Yeah. What's, his yeah, what's his name again, your man's name? Anyway, it's, it's Coleman. Co that's a Coleman, Coleman, yeah. right? Yeah, well, could I, could I make Google last, it on our, yeah. Could I make a last remark? Could I, you I just speak into the, the top of the yeah. mic, that's it, yeah. I said, could we make a last remark that uh, I think the Irish tend to beat themselves up terribly about their ambiguities. And at the same time, if we were to analyse the conduct of Britain's war or anybody's war, uh, at the time that Britain was fighting the second, or the, this was it the Second World War, they were actually being brutal in India. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. The great so, India, so. This gentleman here on, on, over on the right. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say you, you spoke earlier about how uh, Ledwich would change day by day. Um, one thing that's always struck me is the famous meeting in Slane that he walked out of um, had less to do, well, I know it had less to do with the volunteer, with joining the army. He, he had always intended to join the army. Yes. In fact, before the meeting took place... He'd already he, signed up. He, he had gone to Dublin. He had already signed, signed up, up and they wouldn't accept him because he um, had a cold. Because he had a cold. Yes, uh, I know that. Very yeah. few people know that. Yeah. I know. Well, I have a copy of the letter, so that's how I know. <laughs> I have a copy of it too. It's never been published. It hasn't. Now, I did, yeah. Lady Linsaini did give me permission to, to publish it, but I haven't. Yeah. Um, um, okay, just to come in on that, there was a lot of stuff happening at that meeting. Um, he'd made a lot of enemies, you know, um, with the, he, he'd, been, he'd lost his position with the, with the volunteers, with the Board of Guardians, the Mead Labour Union, so there was a lot of hostility in the hall, and the man chairing the meeting was James Kelly, this guy that claimed he'd, he'd been hypnotised. So there was always going to be around that hall, you know, and I even Alice Curtain, I have a lot of issues with Alice, but she, she did put everybody on the right track to Ledwich. Even Alice says that when he, when he left the hall that day, he was on either side. Given Ledwich's description uh, of birds, flowers, plants and everything. Is there any evidence that he actually did any study, botanical study or ornithological studies at any time or was it purely just something that he saw and felt that he... That he maybe through his, he had a friend, Matt Maguna, who uh, had a, a general interest in all sorts of things like, like astronomy and, and, and board watching and all of that. He, he would have got a lot of his information from Matty, his best friend, you know. Yeah, rolling there in the second row there, yeah. Mm. I guess fascinating talk. Liam, um, you are the uh, D expert on, on Ledwich. Um, Ledwich writes uh, after the writing that uh, both McDonough and Pierce were friends of his. Is there any uh, correspondence to that effect that you've ever found? Uh, we, well, uh, we, I think Muriel is here. Is Muriel Macaulay here? Yes, Muriel is here. And Muriel uh, is the granddaughter of Tomás McDonough, and uh, she has confirmed that there was a real friendship between McDonough and, and, uh, and Ledwich. Um, as regards Pierce, we, we, we don't know uh, whether 
Uh, he just included Pierce, or whether he actually knew Pierce or not. Uh, Muriel, do you happen to know the answer to that? Just, just wait for the mic, Muriel. Just, just, you, just you, you wait for the mic if you could. Yeah, yeah wait for the mic. She's the daughter yeah. of an actress. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you won't hear on the recording. Sorry. Yeah, just, just so we. We, yeah, we need it for posterity. Yeah. You know? yeah. I'm not sure if it was Lord Dunsany who introduced Ledwidge to McDonough or McDonough who introduced him to Lord Dunsany, but the three of them were certainly friends on an ongoing basis. I think McDonough uh, tried to help him with his poetry whenever he could uh, on an ongoing basis, and Dunsany certainly gave him advice as well subsequently. Uh, when uh, back in the 40s, Dunsany found he had a handwritten copy of The Lament, which he sent to my Uncle Don as a gift. That's right. And then gift, uh, Don donated that to the National Library. Yeah. But so as it's in his Pierce, hand. Is there any evidence of a link with Pierce? I don't know, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't. Dublin's a small place. I mean, Ireland yeah. and Dublin, those circles are quite small. I'm, I'm sure everyone knew everybody. Uh, could I just move things on a little bit? Just again, keep an eye on the, the clock here. I just want to move on. I, I haven't, we haven't finished with the audience yet, by the way, but um, just on his, his legacy, you know, the, the, you know, because it seems to me that he kind of went out of fashion at a certain yeah. stage, and now there's, there's a revival of interest. Maybe, Miriam, you, you could comment yeah. on that. I mean, did he enter the, the pantheon of kind of Irish poets. I mean, he used to, wasn't he on the, the Leaving Cert? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I first came across Ledwidge when my grandmother was speaking about him, and the poem that she used to recite was The Irish in Gallipoli. Um, and I remember thinking when I was very young, gosh, this, that's a very colourful, such imagery, you know, it was just a treasure chest of, of different images that came at me as a small child. So, that poem was known. She was bo born in 1908. Hmm. That poem was known. So, you know, she passed that on herself. So I would say there's, there's, that was a bit un of a unique experience because it does appear uh, that people pushed the nature poetry mm. rather than any of the poetry that, was that, that concerned conflict or any of his, his upset and, uh, or trying to appeal to the Irish people. So in, you can argue this in two ways. You can say that the fact that he was, his war poetry, for example, was, was if you like, pushed aside or, or didn't receive the focus and the nature poetry became the focus. In one way, it protected him. It mm, protected mm. his legacy because I think if we have been having big debates about Ledwidge back in the 20th century, probably you, we, wouldn't have, uh, we, we wouldn't have been able to, to safeguard too many of his collections. But the fact that that happened and that now we are in a new century, we are able now to open up the discussion on the war side of things and talk more freely about it from a whole host of different perspectives. Um, it, this is a new ground. I mean, when I, I know when I was doing my, my master's in 2012, when I was researching in 2010 and 2011, and, and as a teacher with foreign language students, if I set a project for, for them to, to go on Google or any of the search engines and look for Irish World War I poets, nothing. Hmm. Nothing. I think, I think it's a good place to, to finish with on this discussion, uh, Tommy, because um, you know when you consider when his first book was published, Songs of the Fields, it sold out both sides of the Atlantic and had to be republished that same year and was reviewed in newspapers all over the place. And um, 
I, I think, though, he's, his work suffered uh, from his, because of his involvement in, in the British Army. And, um, you know, apart from the MacDonough home, because um, it did it, though. I mean, because I mean, it, there is a kind of an assumption that the, you know the first world war was airbrushed out. I mean, which I get a bit of a pain in my well, well, here no, after a while, actually, because it, yeah. it seems to me from the research that's not actually true. That that you know this this is. Well, I'm, thinking, I'm, talking, of his, I'm talking of his status. Um, I don't think he's been recorded, accorded his rightful status as a major poet. Um, yeah. And I don't think it's anything to do with the, the, the quantity. Um, uh, John Keats is regarded as a major poet, and he only produced 54 poems in his lifetime. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, since, the first, since the assessment of those first three books of his, Alice Curtain has added another 44 poems. I've added another 66. I think there needs to be a re-evaluation of the work of Ledwidge, yeah. and both as a, as a major poet and as a war poet as well. Mm -hmm. But can I just say uh, that uh, we must acknowledge that uh, to a certain extent uh, Seamus Heaney did lift him out of obscurity to an exactly, extent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely mm -hmm. true. Yeah. As because yeah. of Heaney's status he, uh, and when he turned and wrote the to uh, the poem of Ledwidge yeah. in memoriam, uh, that certainly uh, focused people back. And um, our society, we were formed in '95. We went and visited Mary McAleese, and we uh, introduced her to to Ledwidge presented her with uh, first editions of, of his work and all that and very shortly after she was over with the Queen uh, uh, and recited a Ledwidge poem. So things like that have sort of brought him out. Mm -hmm. Can I just say that we also have another uh, eminent uh, Irish poet with us today, Susan Connolly, mm -hmm. and uh, the first half of, of her book, The Orchard Keeper, it focuses entirely on Francis Ledwidge mm -hmm. and Susan is with us today as well. So. I mean, he's constantly being written about and his life, and she focuses a great deal. She brings in his, his nature imagery too. Now, I, I'm going to wrap up maybe. Do you sure. want to do your last number of it? Yeah. Sure. Let them Sorry, Michael, um, yeah. Could I just say um, what's very interesting about Ledwidge in relation to the, the legacy is that, of course, I noticed on John Quinn's book that, you know, at the Inchcourt, Liam is commissioned to work by Robert Balla, where you have a, a yeah. portrait of, of Ledwidge. But what's very, very interesting about Ledwidge is that um, um, the composer and poet Ivor Gurney set uh, poems of Ledwidge to music way back in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And then a composer, a British composer and singer called Michael Head uh, yeah. wrote a song cycle called The Rim of the Moon. Um, and um, he, uh, he set some of Ledwidge's famous Nocturne, and Rebecca ha has friends who played in that. In that. Uh, mm. So Michael Head set four of poems, and I had the pleasure as a 17-year-old as playing in the Father Matthew Fesh, playing one of Michael Head's songs called Come Take Your Lute, My Love. And I actually met Michael Head, the composer of that cycle. And then um, you have um, Michael McGlynn, who you're going to hear with Anuna, um, on Nuna on Saturday. Michael has done a lot of settings. And um, then I've done the cycle. And Sean Tyrrell from a, a folk perspective. So it's quite amazing the amount of settings now that are in music, anyway, uh, that's appearing uh, of Ledwich. Can you say, Michael, just, just before you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Robert Balla, right? Robert was originally meant to be on the panel here, but he, he couldn't make it and he, he sends his best wishes. But I, I Robert's a neighbour of mine, right? But I actually was in his studio uh, when he was making that painting. And, you know, I mean, Robert would be, would be 
you know, fairly Republican in his views, right? But you could see that he was intrigued by uh, Ledwidge uh, and was... It, Rob, Tommy, you know, it took me yeah. two years to twist his arm to do that yeah, thing. No, but I mean, he, he, but you, it, you converted him anyway it, to Ledwidge. It was anatomy to, to Robert to paint a British... <laughs> But he did he did a great job in the end as a oh, no. painting. Oh you know. we we were so pleased and yeah. it, it, it's a, it's one of his major works now. Yeah. But I'm just saying this way that Ledwidge has this ability to yeah. to um, cross fertilize with other artists in, in other genres, exactly. other forms, whether it be visual or music or whatever. True. Which brings me then to the final bit because uh, uh, we're going to have a, a, our last bit of music here to, to wrap up this evening from Michael Hulan and uh, from Miriam. Called, um, you can use the radio mic there, Nick. This last piece we're going to do is called Crew Bomb. And, okay, it's um, not been filmed. When Susan um, was writing some of her poems and I was working on my piece, we walked a lot of these areas. And this is a, a beautiful place on the Boyne near Slane. And if any of you are ever out that way, you can park your car at the bridge and you can walk down to uh, Crubon and Curabui on the canal, and you can actually see the places. Do you know what's amazing about Ledwidge's work? Ledwidge's work is still in the landscape today. The landscape around there hasn't changed a bit. The blackbirds still sing, the gorse still comes out, uh, you see the white flowers, the hawthorn, uh, and all that. It's an actual landscape you can enter into in your imagination, and it hasn't changed. And even Crubon House is still standing, all of these places. So I'd urge you sometime to go for a walk on the Boyne and bring, a, bring your Ledwidge poems with you. So we're finishing with Crubon. Thank you very much. Yeah, I can second that. I live there too. So. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael Holohan and uh, Rebecca and um, uh, Miriam. Uh, and I'd also like to thank the rest of our panel, uh, Michael Flanagan, uh, Liam O'Mara, and Ewan Halpin. I'd also like to thank you, the audience, in particular those people who contributed uh, to the discussion. Uh, our next Hedge School will be uh, on Thomas Ash in Lisbon, uh, just outside Dingle, his, his birthplace. That will be tomorrow week. That's uh, Friday, uh, the, the, the 4th of August and the next Hedge School Zathra will be at the Electric Picnic and I don't think the music is going to be anywhere near as good uh, as it was. <laughs> uh, so I'd just like to hope to, to see you soon uh, at the, the next one, wherever it may be. Thank you very much. I'd just like to thank Gareth on sound as well. Thanks, Gareth.